welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. And on today's episode, I am happy to have back on the podcast, Dr. Greg Lehman. Now, this interview has already happened live on Facebook on the Sport Physiotherapy Canada Facebook page. So if you want to see the original, you can go to their page. This has been edited a little bit because we had some technical difficulties, and so I edited some of that out, and so you're getting a little bit more of a condensed version here, but if you want to see the whole thing, head on over to Facebook for that. And if you're not familiar with Dr. Greg Lehman, he is both a physiotherapist and chiropractor, and he has a strong biomechanics background, but he's introduced to the field of neuroscience and the importance of the psychosocial risk factors in pain and injury management almost two decades ago. And he believes successful injury management and prevention can use simple techniques that still address the multifactorial and complex nature of musculoskeletal disorders. He's very active on social media, especially on Twitter. So if you want to follow him on Twitter, you can just go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. The link is there for you. Like I said, this was all done on the Sport Physiotherapy Canada Facebook page. And we are supporting the Third World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy, which will be happening in Vancouver, Canada, October 4th and 5th of this year. I've been interviewing a lot of the speakers, and there's going to be a lot more to come. So with Greg, what we spoke about was common misconceptions surrounding the source of pain, do biomechanics matter, promoting movement optimism in your treatment framework, and what Greg is looking forward to at the Third World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy. So a big thank you to Greg and a big thank you to everyone at Sports Physiotherapy Canada for allowing me to conduct these interviews and put them up on the podcast. So a big thank you and everyone, I know you're going to love it. So enjoy today's interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the live uh, interview tonight with Dr. Greg Lehman. And uh, we are we have a lot to cover tonight. So for everyone that is on watching... Oh, good. And we're on. Awesome. Just wanted to make sure. Um, For everyone that's on watching and and kind of throughout the interview, if you have any comments or you have any questions or you want to put Greg on the spot, uh, feel free to do so. We can see your comments as they come up. Greg, if you can't see them, just know I'll kind of let you know. But one thing we do want to know is if you're watching, say hi and let us know where you're watching from. Uh, and that way, when you start asking questions, at least I'll have a better, uh, I'll kind of know who you are a little bit. Uh, now, before we get kind of to the meat of the interview, I just want to remind everyone that if you are watching this, this is not on my page and it's not on Greg's page, but instead we are on the Facebook page for the Third World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy, and that is going to be taking place on... Why do I always, uh, October 4th and 5th in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, 
So hopefully you'll, we're going to be doing more of these throughout the year, uh, talking to a lot of the presenters and Greg is one of the presenters at the Congress. So that's why he's here. Also, so, not just me every time. It's just it's me. Not, and you talking no, to well, although I have to say, I bet people would really enjoy that. <laughs> if it were just, tell me, tell me, I'll fill in for whatever speaker it is and I'll just learn their stuff and then pretend like I know their Okay, so what I would like to see then is you fill in for Sarah Haig. Done. I like shake my pelvis. Pelvic health and stuff like that. That would be amazing. Um, I would would actually wouldn't mind seeing that. Um, Now, before we get started, Greg, can you talk a little bit more about yourself? Just kind of give the listeners and the viewers here a little bit more of a background on you so that they know where you're coming from if they are, in fact, not familiar with you. Okay. Well, leading into that, I, I'm a generalist. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a specialist. Like I, I, uh, I have a background in kinesiology and then a master's in spine biomechanics. And I was really into spine biomechanics, uh, for a long time. Uh, um, but you know, I became not, di- sorry, I was going to say dissolution. That's a little too strong. I, I I've always been skeptical. Uh, skeptical of everything that I've known. And that's probably why I got accepted to my master's uh, in, in, in biomechanics because they liked the questions I asked. Uh, and then I, I went to, um, and my research there was in um, mainly exercise like EMG and manual therapy, what manual therapy does. And I was pretty lucky because I was with Stu McGill and two chiros named Kim Ross and Dave Bresnik, who I always have to mention. And I should give a big shout out to Stu because he took, on Kim Ross and Dave Bresnik, who were Kairos at the time. And they did like amazing uh, research that challenged so much of what we know about, you know, spine manipulation. And they also challenged me to think about what I thought about low back pain uh, at the time. So my master's was really helpful for me because it challenged so much of what I thought. Uh, And so that's when I was first introduced to the biopsychosocial not, not actually not first. Cause I used to read John Sarno when I was mm-hmm. like 19 years old. I was a bit of a nerd when I was a kid. And, uh, but, but definitely the occupational biomechanists at Waterloo, even though they loved biomechanics, even back then they knew that psychosocial factors were important for, mm-hmm. for pain and injury. And then I went to Cairo school, uh, and I never went, actually I went to, that's like in quotes, I like was registered, uh, but I didn't go <laughs> to class <laughs> But I had a research program and they were awesome. They funded me to do more um, biomechanical research. Then I was in practice for a long time. And then I went back to physio school uh, and then I was in practice for a long time uh, and didn't do a lot of research. And then I just started teaching with J.F. Escoulier, who's who's running the the conference with mm-hmm. the running clinic. And they were great. And at the same time, I also started teaching my course, uh, which is about biomechanics and pain science. How How do we like bring them together and you've hosted me I've been there I have taken that course yes and I did I didn't I just for you it was like an echo chamber just just was confirmation by she's like yeah 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 we know this shit Greg but thanks for confirming what I already know uh and my course does that a lot which I don't mind so that's me there you go that was smooth Excellent. Very good. And you know, just as a side note that I spoke to John Sarno a couple of years, like when I was in the middle of like all my neck pain, I reached out to him via email and he said, you need to call me. Oh, interesting. So I called him and I spoke to him. I never saw him, but I spoke to him and he was like, you're a young chickadee. 
I was like, what? I'm like crying. I'm in all this neck pain. I'm like, who is this guy? Um, and he said, well, just get my book, read it. If it doesn't work, come in and see me. Yeah, that's funny. I, I had a patient. He's very, was very famous, very rich. And he bought like a hundred of his books and gave them out to his friends. He thought it was amazing. Sarno was interesting because, uh, and this happens, this is the issue with biomechanics sometimes is he had physios working with him for a mm -hmm. long time. And yep. then he realized that doing physical medicine conflicted with the message he was giving about where pain came from, meaning like predominantly, you know, I'm emotional. I'm, I'm probably bastardizing what I said. It's been a long time since I thought about him. Yeah. And, it, and so, which is funny that he had the problem that I had for a long time. And so many of us do where we think it's biopsychosocial, but often our biomechanical ideas will conflict with our psychosocial. So we have to be careful in how we navigate um, uh, all the multidimensional natures of, of pain. And I think that's the important part is that it's multidimensional and that you can't have that pendulum swing too far in either direction. And, you know, now that we're on the topic of pain, let's go in a little bit deeper. But so what would you say are the biggest misconceptions or common misconceptions around pain? And it's, I'll put this in quotes, sources, quote unquote, sources. Yeah, the, the biggest one, and I, I really like to focus on this because it helps me in, in practice, is it's this idea that, uh, and I, I, I like this because it's how I practice, is, uh, that we don't always need to fix people, right? And, and, and I kind of mean, I don't just mean that in the biomechanical way, and I would have meant that in the biomechanical way five years ago where I would have mm -hmm. said, well, you don't have to fix that posture. You don't have to fix that strength or that weakness. Sorry, you don't, we don't fix strength. <laughs> we got rid of, got to get rid of all that strength. Uh, no, we don't have to fix that weakness or tightness. And, and I believe that, although I do think strength and uh, weakness and, and range of motion can be uh, relevant sometimes. But I also don't think we need to always fix catastrophizing and depression and anxiety and, and worry. Like, and, and so that, that, that criticism goes both ways. It started out for biomechanical with me, but I, I would also say psychosocial. And we, and we see that in the literature where people recover and they still have these, you know, mediators of disability and pain. It could be high catastrophizing, mm -hmm. but they still do really well because maybe they built up their self-efficacy and they got a little bit of control and they were able to do something in something to control their pain or do something that they loved or they had some sort of hope. And so that's, that's the biggest one, that idea of like fixing. And, and if you want to be more technical or mechanical, it's the same idea. Like, I don't think you have to get rid of nociception. So like your tissue irritation stuff, you can have shit going on in the tissues, but it's how you kind of respond to that stuff that that's exciting with. Well, with why would we want to get rid of nociception? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't, well, I, I know what you mean. Like we don't, you don't want to, cause when you sit down, you don't want to get an ass ulcer, right? You definitely want to move around. So, but, but right. it would be like, it's, that's that. I, now we get into crazy stuff. Or, or do you mean the sensitivity around it? Yeah. It, it'd be like, you, you definitely don't want, like a disc, a raging disc herniation that's pressing on a nerve root and you have chemical okay. inflammation. Yeah. So things like that. It, it's worthwhile 
getting getting rid of. But you know, other things, you, you know, you can have tendinosis and a muscle strain, and it can definitely hurt. But it's it's the idea that sometimes maybe what our rehab does is helps us cope with those with those things, right? That's at a peripheral level and more central level. You can have anxiety and worry, and you, those might magnify your pain response, mm-hmm. but you can also cope with them as well. And I, so I love that message because I think it's just positive. Like people think I'm so messed up. I got scoliosis. I'll never be out of pain. And I'm like, dude, like it might contribute. I don't think the research actually supports that. Perhaps, Mm -hmm. perhaps it does, but you can have that and still be doing awesome. Right. So just because you have a, just because you have chronic, let's say persistent pain or you've had pain for X amount of time it doesn't mean that that should be the thing that defines what you do or defines whether you're happy or sad or anxious or, but that it's a part of your life that perhaps you can cope with. Or if you like, in my case, I had many years of chronic pain. Now I have pain every once in a while, but there are times where it's much more severe than I would like it to be. And there are times when I want to fix it or I need to fix it. And then there are other times where I feel like I can cope with it and it's not horrible. Yeah. That's, I think it's context dependent. So if like I had pain last year, like pretty severe for like a week or so. And I knew that in another couple of days I had to get on a flight to go to Sri Lanka. And so I needed it. So what I did for myself was I decided to get medication to help bring that pain, those pain levels down. Yeah. And, and that's what I needed at the time, but I felt so guilty about it. Oh, no. so I was like, is this the, this isn't the, is this the biopsychosocial way? Is this the, the way I should be handling this? Yeah, I, I, I would think so. Cause I'm, I'm going like, yeah. to mansplain you for a second. Cause I'm guessing that you knew that this was just a flare. Yes. It was going to go away and you, you know that you, you've managed it before, but you're just giving yourself a break for a few days. Right. Yeah, right. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking Tylenol for a few days. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's actually, <laughs> it, now we're way off topic, off topic, but it's how I view manual therapy. I don't do a lot of manual therapy, but I don't begrudge people that do, and it's especially in an, at an athlete level. Like we were talking, I, I brought this up with some of the people who are going to be at the, the Congress, and I'm like, I find it ironic that all of us who teach a running course – None of us really teach manual therapy in our running courses. Mm-hmm. And, and no one would ever say that manual therapy is a strongly evidence-based, um, you know, modality for running injury. It, it's, it's not. We would all like, talk about load management and exercise and blah, 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 uh, all of these things. Yet, when you're a physio or a chiro uh, training, like, elite athletes and and you're working with them the day before their competition what are you doing you're probably doing some manual therapy mm-hmm. and so i just found that ironic that we do that that the, when we're when we're traveling with the team and i don't travel with teams but i do have athletes come to see me the day before an event or i've been working with them for months mm-hmm. and here i am doing what people would call low value care but i'm like no sometimes it's a band-aid but sometimes band-aids help <laughs> like sometimes yeah. you need band-aids and that's the only solution or well, the solution that works then. Well, so. it's, it's, and again, it's context dependent, right? So if you're, 
And I saw this on Twitter. I saw that exchange, that uh, this conversation on Twitter about, you know, what are we doing race day? Yeah. Right. And, and race day, like, yeah, you probably are doing some sort of manual therapy. Yeah. Right? Usually right? you're, it's you're not- treating that little niggle and this thing's tight and sore and you just rub yeah. it and people feel better. And if fatigue is psychobiological, which it is, then our, our intervention is probably psychobiological and it could certainly be more psycho based. Yeah. Right. Right. But yeah, I, it's still I, real. Yeah, it's still real. And, and, you know, in the context of athletes and, and being, this is with the uh, third world Congress in sports physical therapy. So there'll be a lot of, we can assume, I don't, I don't know, um, physios there that probably work with an athletic population. And so I think it's important to bring that up. All right. I digress. I did. Um, no, you didn't. I did. <laughs> you, were, you were the professional. So, so let's, uh, so one common misconception is that we don't have to fix everything and not just the biological part, but the psychosocial part as well. Is there any other, maybe one other common misconception around pain and its sources that you hear a lot or you see a lot? I mean, if I had to say anything, it's like, it's the relationship between biomotor abilities, which would be like strength and flexibility Mm -hmm. and and pain. I think that's oversold. You know, I I don't think posture is irrelevant. I don't think strength or motor control is irrelevant. I just think it gets overdone. And that, that to me is the kinesiopathological model, which I have a big issue with, Mm -hmm. which would be like, your knee goes into valgus, you're going to pay for it later and you're going to get knee pain or hip pain. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I'm like, if your knee hurts and it goes into valgus, it's certainly a reasonable option to avoid that for a little bit. And then you might recover because it's an avoidance strategy and build yourself back up and you'll do great. Mm -hmm. But But I think what often happens is we, we then, we then say, well, you went into valgus and it hurt, therefore valgus is inherently wrong and we need to make rules for everyone on how they should function. Right? You you well, I, I hardly saw you when we were in Denver together, but I gave that whole I forgot about that. We just saw each other. Yeah. <laughs> That's sorry, I was with Betty the whole time. I actually so I couldn't hang out with you guys. Um and so that and I and I gave that example of limping, like mm-hmm. When you sprain your example, because that example was great. Yeah, you 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 sprain your ankle and it feels better to limp. That's totally reasonable. But no one would then conclude that we all should be limping. That that, that's the right way to move. And so when when I see like people I really respect, like Shirley Sarman or Jill Cook, who who will you know say avoid hip adduction. Right. It's so horrible on the tendon on the outside of the hip or so bad on, on, on the knee. And I'm like, yeah, it's reasonable for symptom modification, but I don't, I don't want to make a general rule. And, and that happen, happens too much. And then we're, we're too quick to be like, well, just because someone got better with exercises that try to change those movement patterns, it doesn't mean that's why, those, uh, that's why the treatment was successful. Often those rehab programs that try to tra- change movement patterns are like amazingly comprehensive and excellent rehab programs. And then you have like awesome therapists like, you know, Stu McGill or, or Shirley Sermon who just like 
build in this great self-efficacy in people and pump them up and they tell them you can do whatever you like let's just change your movement patterns and start doing the stuff you love again Mm -hmm. may have nothing to do with the movements it's just like the person was like wow i'm awesome you're awesome let's do it yeah there's i think you can't sort of parcel out one part of that complete treatment program and say, this is the thing that worked. This is why this worked. I mean, I, you can't do that. I think that's impossible. No. And it, and it's certainly the same with the people who I really love, like Peter O'Sullivan and that whole group when they help people, like, I don't really agree. With, <laughs> I'm such a jerk. I don't, I don't always agree with their mechanisms because when I see Pete treat, he's just so confident it's like, you can do this, you can do this and bend over and do this and do this. And like, and I would never practice that way. I just couldn't pull it off, but I can imagine how much he helps people. That's actually why I really respect him. What he does really well uh, when he tests CFT is uh, he doesn't test himself. He trains people and other people do it. So uh, I, I actually shouldn't, I'm not knocking his research. I'm just, I can't do his style because he's so, he's so confident in how he does Absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. that's really honorable what he does where he's like, I'm, I'm not going to be the dude that's in the RCT. I'm going to train people and then we'll, we'll do the studies on them, which is mm-hmm. just, that's nice science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and all of those people you mentioned also have, great reputations. People are referred to them when nothing else works. And so as the patient, you're like, well, I know this person's the expert, right? So I think in the patient mind, they're thinking if anyone can fix me, it's going to be this person. And I think that that has, that also plays into it. No, I need to do more of that. I just, I just opened my own little clinic out of my house. We have like a little work. It used to be a workshop, but now it's a clinic gym. And I have nothing on the walls. And I'm like, how can I placebo the hell out of this? <laughs> so that's, I have, I have like art I want to put up. Like, no, mm-hmm. I should put up like placebo shit. Like what it was like going to make me look amazing. Yeah. Well, you can it, put up like awards you've gotten, put up your degrees. People will be like, look at how many degrees he has. Look at all, all of his qualifications. He must be amazing. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. You see that a lot in the U.S. Like when you walk into an office, the degrees and the licenses and certifications. Well, it's all the weekend certifications, all that nonsense. That's yeah. why I, when I after I teach, I always tell everyone, like, whatever you want me to write on your certificate, I will write. <laughs> Level six, fascial blaster, done. You're done. A master fascial blaster. I don't care. It's all bullshit. Biomechanics doesn't matter. Biomechanics matter. Uh, Since it's the sport uh, conference, uh, that's so. Let's start. They definitely matter for performance. We got to listen to our coaches and the physios who have physios who have coaching wisdom. Yeah, biomechanics and technique matter for performance. So if you want to tell someone to sit up straight, it's totally reasonable to do that. If you're thinking how they're going to function thirty years from now, so that. That that's great advice, and then and then it's like a, a question of when they matter after that. And so I kind of parse it into a few different areas of of when they matter. Uh, the big one for me is like what's more important um, is it's not how you move; it's that you that you're prepared to do what you're doing. So me- the mechanics and the loads on the person matter, but it's the movement preparation. So my pithy expression is preparation trumps quality. Right. Something like that. 
Um, and then the other, where the other area where they matter is, is symptom modification. So if it hurts to do something, like if you're a runner and your knees hurt and you heel strike and you have a long stride, it's totally reasonable to shorten your stride, maybe change your foot strike, although that that's debatable, but it could serve. It is certainly is an option. Mm -hmm. And if it feels better, keep running like that. So the mechanics there help, but it doesn't prove, you know, the thesis that there's a right way of running. It's just that you're running differently because another runner, you're going to be like, stop four foot striking and actually lengthen your stride. I've, I've done that pl plenty of, of times. So you're just, you're just symptom modifying. So mechanics help a ton for symptom modification. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's, there's probably under high, high loads, there's probably better ways for your tissue to tolerate strain. You know, like it, 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 if you're landing and cutting, you, you can go into valgus but you probably don't want to go into valgus if your knee's not flexed, right? So high load yeah. where the tissue gets overloaded, <clears throat> it matters. And so, and, and then, and then after that, with that principle there, it gets more difficult because you start thinking of the spine and you're like, okay, is there a better way for the spine to tolerate loads? And that's where we have to, we have debating biomechanical principles here because certainly the bio does drive nociception sometimes. And so th those are the big areas for me where, where biomechanics matters. Sorry, I went over that fast, but. Yeah, no, no, I think that makes perfect sense. And I mean, I don't know if you saw this since you are probably more into tumbling and gymnastics than I am, but yeah, I have one today. I, I haven't seen this yet, but did you see, uh, I think that happened yesterday. Gymnast broke, broke both, both of her legs or something happened. Both of yeah, her I saw that by accident. I won't see it again. But I don't know what happened there. Like, I don't know what, what was the scenario. Double, I, think, I think it was a, it may have been an, a double Arabian or a double front tuck. And uh, yeah, and she landed and then hyperextended. And what freaked me out a little, I only saw it once and I'm not going to see it again, is I, I don't think she landed with straight knees. Mm. They were like bent and then they went into extension like, which freaks me out because my daughter's learning um, front and I'm doing them with her's front tuck step outs mm -hmm. and you kind of land on that one leg and it's straight ish. And I always worry of, of, of hyper extending. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't seen the, the footage of that. So I was just wondering if that would be a time when biomechanics mattered or if it was just an accident. It certainly did. But here's the problem with all the biomechanics mattering stuff is it, the mechanics mattered and caused the injury. It's just whether you can prevent it. Yeah. It's like so many ACLs that someone might cut 10,000 times with their knee in valgus. Well, that that's proof of principle that they're safe. And then they do it one way that's slightly different. And then they tear their ACL. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that the way they were doing it before was unsafe because they, they could have had less valgus pattern before and then they could have done that too like uh, yeah uh, i don't know it's difficult yeah and and i think when you're we're talking about injury prevention i mean that's a whole other uh a whole other conversation but i think that so many factors go into that as well it's sleep it's nutrition it's what did you do the day before was it the beginning of the game the end of the game are you fatigued are you not i mean so much can go into that. So yeah, you can cut 10,000 times and one time you have an injury. It doesn't mean that the way you did it was incorrect. It doesn't mean that the preparation leading up to it, it could have been 
that day. It could have been what you did the night before. I mean, so, so many, uh, so many factors and elements that, that go into something, some sort of accident or injury like that, which is why injury prevention programs are difficult. Yeah. And we, and we see it in running, you know, like we all, we've been saying the same thing for years. You don't have training errors, which just means don't do too much too soon. And then you try to nail it down in the research and you say, well, what's too much and what's too soon. And then there's no real good research on that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because there's so many different variables that influence that. So my joke tonight, we're arguing, not we're talking on Twitter about this. I'm like, well, we can probably all agree when it's like, just looks ridiculously like too much too soon. And that's the pornography test, right? Which is your old Supreme Court justice. It was either pornography or obscenity. And they're like, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Mm. And so when, when a movement pattern or a training load is pornographic, then maybe you avoid it mm-hmm. or depending on your personality. I don't know. Right, well, you mean it just gets to the point where it's so obscene. It's so obscene. You say, ah, that's probably something. That's probably too much. Yeah. But it has to be that, that extreme. And who knows? That's the the worst part is there's probably people who can handle that obscenity. <laughs> and I stop this analogy. <laughs> <laughs> because they, I don't know, they're built for it. They're prepared to handle the. Sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, let's talk about uh, being a movement optimist. Yeah, that's me. Yes. So for those of people watching and listening uh, that aren't familiar with this, can you talk about it a little bit more and how this came about? Well, I mean, I have already. I've already said all the good stuff. I've, I've run out of material. Um, <laughs> I can't I can't even believe for a second that's true. <laughs> you're on like your greatest hits album and that's yeah, it. Yeah. i was <laughs> i was in denmark and they gave me this little bobblehead that you press the top of and the whole thing like bounces oh. and, and I, it's funny i was in um scandinavia three or four years ago and they gave me the same thing it's like this thing that i would get there but it's called a hoptimist oh, <laughs> i loved it I should, my kids have it up. So anyways, so what it means is like, we need to stop vilifying like certain movements, you know, like when you look at someone skateboarding, their knees are going to cave in and it's amazing. And it's, it's a successful movement pattern. If you rock climb and you were just at a birthday birthday party, I was just at a, a rock climbing birthday party yesterday for my 10 year old niece. Well, I doubt they were doing it, but there's something called a drop knee, which is what I do when I climb is, is you, I <laughs> do it. I'm not doing it. Uh, you, you put your foot up behind you almost and drop your knee down into valgus and then stand up on that. And, and you go into that. There were actually some more like real climbers there and they were doing that there were a couple of people doing that move. Cause I remember my friend that I was with was like, Oh my God, look at that person's knee. How is she doing that? Yep. And, and you'll also, and so Alex mm-hmm. Honnold is a famous rock climber. He was, they just won the Oscar for free. Oh, yeah, He's the dude that climbed Yosemite without a mm-hmm. rope. Mm-hmm. But I, I've sometimes he's in another documentary, uh, uh about Yosemite. Uh, and, I've filmed it when he's in it because he, he sits like me. He's like super hunched forward with a super forward head posture. And here he is 
climbing, you know, these massive granite walls. Mm -hmm. And that's a movement optimist. It says you can do all these weird, funny things with your body and still be fantastic. You can be a Paralympian where you're missing a limb and have induced, you know, asymmetry. You can have scoliosis and make it to the Olympics. You can have scoliosis and live five times your body weight. And so, and so that's the optimism. It's this, it's this revolt a bit against the kinesiopathological model, which to me certainly has value. It, it, it certainly has um, treatment efficacy because I, I like the treatments that are associated with it. But the fundamental ideas behind it, that there's like bad ways to move or, or better ways to move for injury and pain, that, that's what I would challenge. I'd be like, let's be more optimistic in how we move. You know, we don't, we don't have to always fix these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and, and anytime someone like me talks and says to people, oh, you can move this way, you always want to look for exceptions, right? When, when you're in practice, like, when should I, you know, disregard what I think? Like, when, you know, when is how someone moves? Like, when, when is that important? You know, that, and that'll help you be a better clinician, I think. Always challenging whatever you think is true. It makes it difficult. I was just going to say that. That makes it for a long work day. It does. Like, there's always a sense of doubt, but it's it's better. <laughs> And, but I think having that, as a clinician, having that sense of doubt is not a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to want to agree with you. But I, then, <laughs> sorry. It was like, why am I listening to this guy? <laughs> it's like, but then there's like those clinicians that get people better by sheer force of personality. <laughs> yeah. Because the, they have that utmost belief in what they do, even when they may be full of shit. And so yes. shit, that's always hard, sorry. Yes, yes. And and I, I anyway, yes, I have yeah. a great example of that, but I'm not going to go into it right now. Okay. Um, you, have, you also have to wake up in the morning and be happy with yourself. So Exactly, exactly. So I'm not, yeah. Um, okay, this will be an easy one for you. What is the most common question you get asked by other physiotherapists? If you could say, whether it's maybe they private message you or at your courses or at lectures, what is the most common question that other physios or healthcare providers ask you? Oh, it's usually like, <laughs> that's funny. See, I didn't, I didn't read this one before, but a few things. Uh, but usually it's like, what's the paper that you mentioned? And then I have to like come up with a name and I usually know it. But the, the, the bigger one uh, is, this is what I do with people. This is not what you talked about, but tell me why it's helping them. <laughs> that's, that's like a lot. It's like they want validation and they, they want to like, you know, tell me their theories of things, but really tell me, they want me to tell them why it's, it's great. <laughs> it's like what the mechanism is. That's right. Like why it's okay. Right. Yeah. 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 A lot of looking for just your confirmation. Confirmation. And then like, and then trying to like find out why it works. Like they want, 
me to do the uh, like the research <laughs> behind it. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what what do you say? Uh, I mean, it, 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 it depends. Like I, I, I probably do like the motivational interviewing thing where I roll a bit with mm-hmm. resistance and I just probably, it's pretty bad, but I probably just re say, or actually it depends if I've met them before. I'll just talk about the general, uh, things that help pain. And I'll say, maybe it's working this way. But I don't. That's all. I, I, if if I think they're totally off base, I don't think I ever really say that. I don't know if I've ever done that. Now, if you kind of alluded to this in your answer there, but if you could recommend one must-read book or article, what would it be? And if you want to say one book and one article, but just one. Yeah, you know what? I, I'd go old. Oh, sounds funny saying old school, but I I would read. David Butler's The Sensitive Nervous System. Mm, so good. Yeah, it is because it's not only good in like uh, pain, but if when you read it, he, he's just throwing out little ideas all the time. Like it, it would be nice for me to reread and just pull out his anecdotes and like little things that he says to do because there's things that I do and I thought, oh, this is kind of neat. And I thought I'd discover them myself. I thought I'd, you know, you know, found it myself. And then I'm realizing he already said it 20 years ago or something like that. Yeah. 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 That. And then like his former partner would have been Louis Gifford. Mm. And I, I've only read parts of his, his books, but I've read some of his other writings and I, I like his stuff too, but so yeah. I'll with David Butler's the sensitive yeah. nervous system, which is just, and, and it's what 15 years old, but it's still plenty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And for people who are listening or watching, we can, I can plug that into the comment section um, when this is done. All right. So let's move on to the conference, October 4th and 5th in Vancouver, the third world, third world Congress of sports physical therapy. So can you give us a little bit of a glimpse into what you're going to be talking about? Not really. Uh, but I am talking with Alex uh, Hutchinson, who's I know. who's kind of a friend of mine here in in Toronto. Like the same kind of know the same people. You run in the same uh, crowds, is what you're saying. What's that? You run in the same crowd. A bit like we know, like we've rock climbed together. Oh, nice. Yeah, uh, we've been to some similar weddings. Oh, <laughs> not similar. We've been to the same weddings, um, uh, and, and so I, I've, I've known Alex like for a while and and I, I love his stuff and I, I I always pump up his stuff in my courses. That's what's funny. And then when they when they put him with me, I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. Uh because I always talk about the psychobiological model of fatigue, which is that fatigue is is kind of a nice analog for pain. That it's not just purely physiology, that there's a there's a psychology component to fatigue. And I'm like, oh we should talk about this because uh-huh. Look how this area of function relates to pain. But so we're talking together on like this massive nebulous talk, topic of pain science in yeah. athletes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, that's a heavy one. I'm listening to his book Endure right now. Yeah. See, I like the breath holding stuff in there. Cause I used that's to hold where That's where I'm right now. I'm yeah. on oxygen. That's the chapter I'm on now, which I'm, I can't even 
fathom. So go go online and, and find David Blaine's uh, breath holding stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. David yeah. Blaine used to have the breath holding record because breath because holding. He in pure oxygen beforehand, right? Yeah, he did, but he could also do like eight minutes without that. Like the, I used to hold my breath in church all the time <laughs> to pass the time. Uh-huh. Um, but breath holding is interesting because if, if you just hold your breath right now, you might make it thirty seconds. But you could train yourself to make it for four minutes. So within like a few days, if not an hour. Wow. So it means yeah. your your physiological reaction to try to breathe is way overcooked. And that often happens with persistent pain. Mm-hmm. We overdo this protective response. So, you know, Alex, but I, like, so I've been talking about breath holding for years. And then Alex, Alex's book came out. And I'm like, perfect. Now I can refer people to that. Yeah weight better down but that that so like finding analogs between weird things about pain and then interesting things about performance or breath holding is, is really nice so um, uh, we've been talking we're probably going to go rock climbing and then we're gonna try to maybe come up with something that's that parallels mm-hmm. each other i will probably i'm guessing talk about like how we i like doing something really practical like instead of saying this which might have a negative connotation to some patients, like set them up to have some, you know, less than um, good expectations, mm-hmm. say this instead. So, you know, like the diet stuff, don't eat this, eat this. Yeah. <laughs> well, it would be the same idea with explaining common running injuries, which we'll probably talk about because Alex is a runner and I'm a slow runner. Yeah. <laughs> or was. Uh, so it, mine, mine will probably be some, something, uh, like that. Just cool. better way to, to, to phrase things. And cause everyone always says to me like, okay, well, what the hell do I do then? If I, if I don't tell them that they're, they have SI joint pain cause it's out of place, then what the hell do I say? Mm, you know I mean? Yeah. So I think, and then that's really fun and, and it's a nice, and we'll have time to talk about it too. Cause there'll be a lot of wisdom in the room and hopefully we'll maybe pull that out. Yeah, that sounds great. And I, I really appreciate those kinds of conversations because then I know that I can kind of take that and use that with my patient population on Monday yeah, or Tuesday, whatever day, but you know what I mean? The next day in the clinic. That's the idea. I don't want to hammer people with research. I know I won't do that. That's for sure. That's easy. I could do that and it'd be entertaining, but you're like, Oh, well I got some more research, but it'll probably be more practical. It will be more practical. Sorry. Nice. And I look forward to, you know, the two of you speaking together, I think will be entertaining and educational. And I look forward to that kind of play that you guys will most likely have off of each other. Oh yeah. We're, now we're that funny. I'm like funny listening funny. to his book and you brought up the breath holding, which is exactly where I am. And it, it reminds like in the breath holding chapter, you know, he said like, the people who had like, who broke these records was, um, or who could really hold their breath the longest were the people who knew that someone was there to pull them up if they needed it. Yeah. And so when I think about that, as it compares to pain, like, especially persistent pain, I wonder if you knew like you had an out, would that pain still be as persistent? So that's what got me thinking in this, listening to this chapter. 
was like, hmm, if you knew your pain had a safety net, how would that change your view of your pain? Oh, that's interesting. No, and I, I, I think what you're talking about has actually more ramifications for the negative aspects, right? Because most people think, oh, this will pass, but there's a mm. subset who think this won't pass and, yeah. hope, and that's why there's no optimism. And that's right, right. of building that, where that there's, there's no reason for them to think that it will change. And that's kind of what we have to do is yeah. build that Agreed. model that there's a possibility for change. Yeah. Just have that little bit of hope there. Um, and before we're going to wrap things up in a second, but Kate Pratt said, what, uh, I find one of the greatest sources of misinformation to patients about pain and biomechanics is their MD slash ortho. As PTs, we hopefully consistently educate our patients. Do you think it's possible to educate MDs and orthos regarding pain and how would you begin to approach such a scenario? So I think she means as the individual clinician with, you know, the referring physician or the physician who's seeing that patient. Yeah, I, I, I mean, in general, I think that's a problem across the board of all professions, how we change our colleagues. Let's mm-hmm. view the docs like our colleagues. And so, uh, I, I'm not really sure because you, you would assume that has to happen at a at a school level, right? At the the, the training there and at, at a conference level. So it's it's really conferences and schools who are open to, you know, providing the the different messages there. But I but I would say, and we've talked uh, a lot about this, is um, when you do have patients who have these beliefs from their doctors or other healthcare providers, which is super common. Um, there, there are routes that you can, you know, still address those beliefs without throwing the doctor under the bus. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's what you have to, to figure out. So often it's more like acknowledging, yeah, that's, you know, you have hip pain because you have hip OA or something. You can say, that's part of it. This is the optimism approach. Yeah. The hip OA is part of your hip pain, but you can still do great even though you have those changes on the scan. And that often really helps, especially with when physios and like we're navigating referral sources. Yeah. And it's so funny that you bring, I just got, I just like 10 minutes ago before we started, I got a referral from a sport MD who was in the course I taught with JF Escoulier on running five years ago and said, are you seeing patients? And, and like, it was so funny that she was in the course because you don't normally see MDs, yeah. you know, taking courses with the physios and she was great, great to do that. And, and so that's how we have to change views is somehow get into that educational system. Yeah, I agree. And from a, a one-on-one, I, I think it's difficult. I mean, I've, um, said I what I've done once that worked with a with a referring physician was you know I said hey you know we're doing this 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 and this but I found this article do you want to take a look and let me know what you think because I'm thinking of incorporating it and it was oh, like yeah, yeah. A, a, an, a, I don't know I think it was an article by Mosley or or Peter O'Sullivan and so I sent him that and then he was like oh yeah it's really interesting yeah definitely start doing that so that's a way you can kind of maybe start. Yeah. Or, or he or she just rolled with your resistance. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. No, I, I totally agree. You, I, 
Yeah, I think that's just an example. Like I'm trying to be like, because it's a way to be diplomatic. It's so hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. It's a way to be diplomatic. It's a way to say, you know, I don't know. Oh, Chris. I really like that you sold. uh, You just sold a good treatment plan, and then you gave them like other research behind it. That's nice. Yeah. Probably better than saying you're an idiot. Yeah. Well. Yeah. But, and I mean, I I also find that like I had one doctor that came back to me and he's also a good friend of mine. He was like, Oh, it's really interesting. Like we need to talk more about it. Oh, that's cool. Which is awesome. You know, but he's also a friend began, you know, we played softball together. So it's like, it's a different, what's that? People play softball. Yeah. You go play racquetball later or something from 1983. Softball is really big in New York City. Like on Fifth Avenue? I don't even know where Fifth Avenue is. I just made that up. I assume you have. Sure, whatever. Central Park. Anyway. um, (laughs) And no, there's no racquetball, but there's a lot of squash. Um, Squash (laughs) called racquetball. Yeah. Bill, smaller courts. Um, Oh, Chris Johnson said to say thanks for carving out the time. No, I don't want to hear that guy. And you said to stop picking your eye. Um, yeah. Always exercise diplomacy and avoid creating a disconnect. It doesn't accomplish anything. And that's in regards to Kate's question that we just tried to answer. Like I'm bringing a course to New York City and we're going to have like a free two hour preview of it and just invite doctors. Wow. That's, you know, one way to do it. If you want to get them involved in the educational process with phys- with physios, which I think is great. My, my, one of my best course ever uh, in Toronto here was we had three physiatrists that came and they were, uh, they were fantastic. That's awesome. They were so in, into this stuff. It was a bit, some of it seemed a bit new, but they're open and like, and then they emailed everyone after and. Great. Like they've shared their experiences. I, I love when you have multidisciplinary uh, people uh, at the course. Yeah. So, so, yeah, there are some, I mean, I'm not throwing MDs under the bus. They certainly, it's so hard. My, I have a friend who's an MD and he's like the best motivational interviewer I ever knew. Like he, he was so uh-huh. good. Like he knew this things that his patients had to do, but he, you know, in Canada, you only have eight minutes with them. Yeah. And or, or whatever. Anyways, so I'm off topic. So let's wrap things up here. Are there any presentations you're looking forward to seeing at the conference? Aside from uh, Rod, uh, Rod Whiteley. Yeah. I really like his like career and the, the stuff he's done and, and what he's doing there. You know, there. I'm I, presenting I, with him. I'm on that. that? I'm oh, on yeah, yeah, yeah. Christian Barton. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to see his shit. I don't, those Australians really bother me. They're a little dodgy. They're backwards. <laughs> you know. uh, oh, are you? Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to see yeah. that. I would like to bug him about Glad. Uh, <laughs> Christian or? Christian. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, Eva. Eva Roos is going to be Yeah, there. I mean, I'm like, I shouldn't get this. <laughs> I'm a socialist. I like exercise for everybody. I don't like the name to trademark things. <laughs> Sorry. Well, uh, you know, I interviewed her. Yeah. For one of these, and she, we talked about that. Yeah, 
I was gonna like um, creep it, for, <laughs> but I didn't. You should have. I don't know, but I have trouble like arguing with exercise. It's still great. I still yeah. still think the program's great. But anyways, yeah. um, some other time. Uh, no, yeah, you and Chris uh, and, and Rod, like, oh, see, it's amazing. It's jam packed. Like, there's there's so many. So that that's one of the reasons I I wanted to go because. You know, I, I would have, it'd be nice to go to that conference as well. Rather oh, yeah. than I get to speak there. Awesome. Well, I am looking forward to your talk with Alex. I think, and, and I'm, but I will obviously finish his book within the next week. So that's very exciting. Um, and I've already taken your class and, and read your free resource. So I feel like I'm like ready for it. Okay. I'm good. I'll bring something new. I'll come armed with lots of questions. All right. So before we hop off, where can people find you? Um, just, just my website, I guess, which is greglayman.ca. Okay. Which I hardly do anything on. Uh, and then Twitter, same thing. Twitter's my favorite. I like, I like the discussions on Twitter. You can cultivate them, mm-hmm. try to keep it polite and nice and, you know, edifying. So... Facebook, nah, it's for the trolls. I think, yeah, I guess it depends. Anyway, that, again, a whole other conversation. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, no, no, I'm on. I'm, I'm doing a big thing on Facebook right now. I shouldn't say that. I'm doing. <laughs> what are you doing on? Oh, right now. Oh, right, right. This second. Yeah, because we have like a podcast with me and Adam. Oh, I have a podcast. I guess. And <laughs> it's well it's adam it's meekin's podcast but i'm a co-host so i guess it's mine i don't know when do you get part of that um i've done three with him I don't think so. i'm just yet. i'm just baggage i'm a carry-on yeah i think i think you need you need a little bit more i don't think that three really qualifies as like a permanent co-host i think oh yeah probably- yeah i don't think i want that no, no, no. I think you're still like a guest co-host for a couple. Give it a couple more, and then I think you're in. Oh, okay. Well, we're doing like a thing on neurodynamics, like oh, yeah. neurodynamic techniques. And so I wanted to pull people and see what people thought. You know, I was curious what we, people thought, what the hell we were doing when we do them. Yeah. I, so I like Facebook for that. I, I use them. Yeah, me too. I use them. I use them in, oftentimes in people who are a little fearful of movement. Yeah. So what does that tell you about what you're doing? Are you really like manipulating the nerve to, you know, feed it more oxygen or something? I mean, I are you getting someone moving again? I think, I think you're getting someone moving again. I think, um, you're taking them to a place where they can stay within a relative comfort zone and, and you can kind of see, I think what, what I use it is because you can see some changes pretty quickly. Yeah. And so I think patients then get a little more confident that they can move because mm-hmm. they can see those changes pretty quickly. So that's why I like to use them is to give people some hope. It's, like it's symptom people. modification. Yeah. Like a mulligan. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I use them, but I use them quite a bit. Me um, too. Just because I think they, I think that they work very well. The only time I don't use them was really with like one person who said, oh, I was doing all these nerve glides and now it made my arm so much worse. <laughs> it's like everything, you know, but I don't know how many, which, what they were doing, why they were doing them, what explanation they were given. I have no idea. 
Yeah. So that I just sort of held off for a little bit and had them move a different way. But yeah, so that's why I use them. So you're, we'll uh, you. what's that? We're going to quote you then. You're going to podcast. Oh, yeah. that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. All right. So if no one else has any questions, oh, Agnes said that she'll play softball with me in Vancouver. Well, Deal. tell Agnes, I'm going trampolining and rock climbing. So <laughs> whatever your call. Deal. I would go trampolining, but I really just like bungee. Well, yeah, yeah, you're a gymnast. Let's do stuff. I know. I like doing bungee trampoline. What? Have you ever done bungee trampoline? No, that sounds lame. Well, you're attached to a bungee, and then you obviously go down, and then you can go up and flip like two, three times in the air and come back down again. I like the risk. It's can you fun. can you twist? I want to spin. I want to twist. You can't twist, but I did do a double layout. Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I couldn't. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'd like that. I would do that. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, but yeah, so I would I would definitely play softball. I will bring my glove and no, I. No, what about no no trampoline? I want to do a back full. I could do some trampolining. Okay. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have done it ten years ago or five years ago because of my neck. But now I can do it. Yeah, totally, you can. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be fun. Yeah, they have a tumble track. So we can do ground up, back handspring, back tucks. I that I cannot. I have no. I don't. People don't need to hear this. Um, sorry, everyone. People don't need to hear. I know you can. You can do it. I don't think. No, I can't. I haven't even done a cartwheel in years. Years. It's in there. No, I know it's in there. Um, but I would need a spotter for a cartwheel. Are you bringing your daughter? She can spot me. (laughs) Oh, Betty. Yeah, no. We went three times that weekend, eh, to a trampoline park. So Just so people know, we, Greg and I were at the Align Conference a couple of weeks ago in Denver, Colorado, and he had his daughter Betty with him because it was her birthday weekend, and she was his personal photographer, just so that it made him look better than everyone else because he had personal paparazzi. Um, and she was just super adorable and doing back walkovers, and um, she probably would have done a lot more, but we were... At a conference. Well, she did a roundup back handspring on that oh, floor on the first day. Nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. That impressed me. She was very sweet. And, and uh, that's, that's who we're talking about. All right. And anyway, yeah, right. I want to edit all of this out before I put it out on a podcast. Yep. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. And sorry for our rambling at the end. Um, if no one else has any questions, I just want to thank you all for listening. And make sure you go and click on the link on this Facebook page to take you to the website for the third world Congress of sports physical therapy. Again, it's October 4th and 5th in Vancouver. Greg is speaking with Alex Hutchinson. And I think that's going to be a highlight of the conference. So you don't want to miss it. So Greg, thanks so much for hopping on the call and sorry for the technical difficulties. Yeah. It was a bummer. All right. Thank you so much. And we'll try and put all the information that we spoke about um, in the in the comment section here. So thanks, everybody. And Greg, thanks again. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.